that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Okay, so my name is Ron Cole Turner. I am just about to retire from a lifelong career in theological education, working with Protestant clergy in training. I'm a, at a seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and here I've been teaching students in the Presbyterian and other Protestant traditions. My own ordination to Christian ministry is in the United Church of Christ, uh, UCC, but different from the UCC of Canada, uh, United Church of Christ. So along the way, as I began to specialize in research, I became more and more interested in the ways in which technology changes nature. So nature is a very big topic for theology, of course, doctrine of creation. But how is it that technology modifies the creation? And is it still the same creation, or is it suddenly become something different? So I began to reflect on that, and the more I reflected on that, the more it led me to the question of the transformation of the human through technology. And so over the last 15 or 20 years, I've been fascinated by questions of transhumanism, human enhancement, all read over against my own religious tradition, which also has a view about what human development or human growth or maturity or flourishing, human destiny beyond this life. So how do I understand the technological modifications of our humanity religiously or theologically? I'm not sure I have any good answers on that. I think I've got most of the big questions identified, but I'm not sure I've solved anything at all, except to say that I do think that technology is a profoundly religious affair, and religion ought to give, religion across the board, but particularly my tradition, ought to give a far greater attention than we have to the impact of technology on all of nature, but in particular human nature. Thank you for the introduction, Ron. That was great. And yeah, we'll be covering hopefully some of these topics in more depth today. This being I'm Immortal, the podcast, uh, one question we always ask at the beginning is, what does immortality mean to you? Well, it's a tough question because I tend to want to take a classic kind of purist approach. And immortality is defined as something that the creation does not have. I'm talking about the whole cosmos. I'm talking about any creature within. We are all transient, at least in the form in which we now exist. Immortality, if there is such a thing, applies only to what is outside or supernatural, and that gets you into debated territory right from the start. Is there a God independent of the creation? If so, is that God immortal? And in a theistic tradition, any of the Western Abrahamic traditions, the answer tends to be, yes, indeed, there is. And so immortality is something that applies, strictly speaking, only to the one who creates everything else, which is inherently transient and mortal. Now, there's a workaround for that, of course. Can the creature receive immortality by participation, not by our own possession or ontological 
capacity to endure forever, but more by our participation in the life of the divine. And that's what gets us into questions of, you know, what, what's the goal of the religious life? For, again, for Christianity or for other traditions as well. And if we enter into that relationship, can we attain a kind of immortality by participation? Again, not as a possession, but something that comes to us by virtue of a relationship which that which with that which is only the only true immortality in all reality, and that is the immortal creator of all things. So relationality becomes very important. Meanwhile, we endure day after day. Uh, we endure over a lifetime. Uh, we extend this lifetime. Uh, recent research has suggested that in the past uh, century, human beings on average have essentially doubled their life expectancy, or as some people are saying, it's like we've got a second life. Well, is that going to max out? Can we tweak our mortality? Yes, but I don't think it's possible. I mean, for, for religious, philosophical reasons, I don't think it's possible to start with a high or strict view of immortality and say, oh, immortality is something we can engineer. It's not within the scope of the creation, except as a religious affirmation by virtue of participation. Mm -hmm. I really like your answer there. So I know if I asked the question, would you like to be immortal, you would most likely answer that's not possible. But if you were given the option to live a much longer, like 500, 600 years, would you take that opportunity? Well, I think I would take it one day at a time. We've all seen people who reach a certain point, and my own uh, extended family members, I come from a family where people tend to live into their 90s, and almost without fail, they tended to say, I'm ready. I've seen enough. Or as they would put it, they're very devout religious people. They would say, I'm ready to go. In other words, I'm ready to go to another place where they believe they would continue their lives after an interruption of some sort, but they would continue their lives in the presence of the divine. So it wasn't like they were going into the bleakness of a night from which there is no dawn. Their confidence in their own immortality, coming immortality, may have tempered their view, but I don't think so. I think human beings tend to reach a point where they just kind of get weary of life. I'm not there yet. I'm 72. I'm drinking my green tea. I walk all the time. I want to be around a while. I'm not there yet. I haven't seen enough yet. I haven't experienced all the joys of life. So I'm taking care of myself. And if somebody said, look, take this, and we're pretty sure it'll give you an extra five years or 10 years or 15, I'd probably take it. I would want the option at some point to say, okay, no more, no more of this magic pill. Mm -hmm. No more of this. And it does occur to me, the more we allow people successful access to successful technologies that do, in fact, extend their lives, the more I think, as a society, we're going to have to be willing to say, we're going to allow people the option to kind of shut that down. Right now, we have a lot of trouble with that, at least for some, in some settings and some religious traditions in particular, but in some settings. So it would seem to me that the technology of life extension needs to come with a kind of a fine print option, and that is to elect to turn it off. 
How will we navigate that? I haven't a clue, but I don't, I mean, like a lot of people, I don't want to be stuck there, unable to die while withering away. And I don't know anybody who wants that. So if you're asking, do I want extended life? I guess I would say yes. What I really want is extended health span, not extended lifespan, but extended health span. If that's the deal, sign me up, but let me have the option to- An out, right? Drop out later. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Makes sense. So before we jump into more questions on like life extension longevity, just because some people might not have a background on what Christianity is, do you mind explaining sort of what it means to be a Christian and I guess the outcome of the life of a supposed good Christian? That's a hard question. Well, everybody knows in the broad stroke, Christianity, its history, its founding, but it's fragmentation into so many competing groups that are not always very nice to each other, to put it mildly. So Christian conflict with, I mean, we fight with everybody, we fight with each other, but we also fight with other traditions as well, partly because we take beliefs very seriously. What are those beliefs? And here's where we get into trouble with other, particularly the Abrahamic traditions. We agree God is one right? Then the old call to the Hebrew people, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We agree with that, but Christians add a really complicating notion that this one is really best thought of not as one person or one thing or one substance, but almost like one community or one society. And other people look at that and say, wait, you're not, how can you say that without saying there are three gods? So you're not monotheistic after all. You're saying there are three. Well, no, not three beings, not three realities. I mean, if we have to have to use those words, we would say one, 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 one all the way through. But this oneness is self-differentiating so that there's relationality within it. Remember earlier, I was talking about relationality. The relation of the human person to this community of the divine. The divine itself is a kind of community into which the human is invited, not as an equal partner, but as a kind of like a newborn in a family, kind of like, uh, you know, welcomed into the community. But underlying that is the notion that the divine is best understood as a community in which there are three who always act together in doing distinct things. So one of them, and this is where we, again, we get into no, I mean, we, we get into all kinds of misunderstanding with our fellow human beings and other faith traditions. One of these three enters so fully into unity with the human that we say it's an incarnation of the divine in our humanity. And others look at that and again say, this is nuts. This is heresy. This is betrayal of the sanctity, the holiness, the otherness, and the unity of God. To which Christians would reply, yeah, we're not quite sure how to explain this, but we really think that the fellowship of the divine is open so completely that the human can be brought in and every human being can participate in that. And if you think about it a little while, which I tried to do, I can't imagine, and this is what keeps me anchored to Christianity, I can't imagine a view, philosophically or religiously, that more elevates the human 
in dignity, in wonder, in mystery, in freedom than this view. You know, I'll be the first to admit, Christians have so often messed that up or explained it badly or not unpacked the human dignifying implications of all of this as we should, or we've applied it selectively. My goodness, how we've done that. You know, some of us participate and others, well, you know the history. But at our best, that's what we affirm. Every human being is invited into this elevation of humanity so that the mystery of the universe, the mystery that lies behind the universe, is love that reaches out and brings the universe into existence, first of all, brings each one of us into existence, but then brings us into community. That, I think, is the core of what Christianity tries to say. Meanwhile, it gets all tangled up with crazy notions of a judgmental God who's sending half of humanity to hell and uh, wants us to hasten the process by going after them. Again, there's no defense for the track record of Christianity, and I don't want to suggest that there is. We have behaved abysmally. On the other hand, at our best, I think that's what we are trying to hang on to, and I hope articulated in a way that gets rid of the excesses of the past. Well, I guess it sort of makes more sense. It's definitely a tough concept to wrap around. One thing I did want to ask was, so when we were doing our reading, we understand there's three major denominations of Christianity, like the Orthodox, uh, you have the Catholics, and then the Protestants, and I think the Calvinists and the, or the Reformed Christians are a like a subsect maybe of Protestants. Could you tell us sort of the differences, at least between the major denominations? Like, what's the major divide for? Oh, gosh, I wish I could explain that in a way that make people sympathetic. Just a lot of pettiness and misunderstandings, particularly in the late medieval period, 12th, 13th, 14th century. Christians in the West, organized around Rome, behaved very badly in dealing with Christians in the East, based around Constantinople as it was called then, Istanbul, of course, now. And, I mean, the Christians in the West sacked Constantinople first, right? I mean, we trashed the place because of, I don't know, I guess there's a reason. Anyway, so fast forward a couple more centuries. By the early 1500s in northern Western Europe, you have a breaking away, healthy in some respects because it undermines the monolithic power of the Church of Rome in the West. That had grown to excessive proportions, the Inquisition in Spain and on and on and on. So there's a breaking away that amounts to the breaking of that power. The Lutherans, founded by Martin Luther, that's the first. But very quickly thereafter, in Switzerland in particular, but eventually in the Netherlands and in England and Scotland, etc., a movement called the Reformed Movement. And the key guy there is John Calvin, who kind of has a bad reputation. But in his case, I'd I'd actually defend him against some of his critics because he really wasn't a pretty remarkable human being. A French humanist trained in law who then read the biblical text in the original and was just blown away by the transformative message and proclaimed that sometimes with a heavy hand, <laughs> but uh, again, we're talking, we're talking 16th century Europe. Nobody was very nice to each other back then. So big movement, emphasizing education, emphasizing lay participation, 
setting the seeds, I think, of representational government that's clearly hinted in Calvin and gives birth to uh, representative democracies eventually in Western Europe. A lot of good, in other words, comes from that movement. And yet we fight, we fight, we fight. I mean, just zoom in to the conflicts of Europe in the aftermath of the Reformation, Christians slaughtering Christians. Um, and that goes on even, I mean, it's still flickering these days in Belfast. God help us. I hope the Good Friday Accord lasts, but religion seems to add an accelerant to conflicts. And all of us in Christianity, at least, we've done our bit to make life miserable for, well, for non-Christians, of course. We're equal opportunity oppressors, I guess you'd have to say. But to Belfast to this day, Protestant and Catholic squaring off against each other, not primarily over religion, but religion is the glue that holds the identities together. And it's just sad because, again, at its best, Calvin offers an uplifting message, as does Christianity itself. Perfect. So you've talked a lot about the history of Christianity and how the major denominations were created. So what is the Christian view of life after death and eternal life? Like, where do we see eternal life in the Bible or wherever Christianity appears? Additionally, what happens to us after we die? Uh, gosh, there's no simple answer that would speak for all Christians. And there's no simple answer that would speak for all of what Christians regard as scripture. The 39 books we call the Old Testament, Hebrew in origin, and then the 27 books that the Protestant church at least has added to those by Christian writers, first century Christian writers. In those texts, you have a variety of views. Some people think that the earliest text, chronologically in terms of, well, where they appear in the table of contents, the earliest texts actually suggest that Adam and Eve, you know, the so-called first humans, were created immortal. Most Christian theologians have disputed that, but it could be that by participation, as long as they remain, you know, on the right side of things, they would have continued forever. But of course they didn't, and so here we are. But you get some crazy ideas that early on there was a really radical life expectancy in the hundreds of years, or in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. And as long as you can get your fix from the tree of life, you are going to stick around a while. By and large, what Christians tend to believe is that every human being is multidimensional. Now, some will go so far as to say multi-substance, by which they mean a physical substance and a spiritual substance, or what, well, the soul as if these are two different substances. And I think that the simple test for dualism in that sense of two substances, the simple test is, can one survive without the other? Or particularly, can the soul survive without the body? There are a lot of Christians that believe that. I'm not sure that's the plain teaching of Christian scriptures, again, the New Testament. It's a little hard to know exactly what some of these texts say on philosophical questions, because they're not trying to answer philosophical questions. Some of the writers do use the language of body, and they use the language of soul. But as I read that, what they're after primarily is to awaken the human to a transcending relationship, call that the soul, transcending relationship, rooted in the body, 
but taking us beyond just the ordinary eating and drinking and that kind of stuff, taking us into a spiritual domain. And entering that, we enter the sphere in which there's some sort of promise. Well, we enter even now into that kind of relationship, which transcends death. So entering into that relationship now, being born into that relationship now for Christians means that when you die, well, what happens when you die? We're all over the place on that one. John Calvin couldn't quite figure that one out, couldn't quite decide what happens when you die. And he was thinking of the next 100 years, the next 500 years, the next 10,000 years. What happens when you die? Some kind of rest or sleep. We use metaphors like that. So somebody dies, they are resting in God or resting in the Lord or asleep. Christians will use a phrase like asleep in Jesus. Yeah, okay. Interpret that not literally, but as a comforting metaphor, because we don't know what else to say. But by and large, Christians will say, at some point in the future, things will change. The cosmos itself will change. There'll be a general transformation of the entire cosmos. And the core of what you are will somehow be brought into a new, uh, dare I say, physical substrate. Again, I'm cautious there because the New Testament does not use any Well, it does in a way. I was going to say it doesn't use any kind of language. Paul uses this very interesting language. He compares it to seeds that are planted and then germinate, right? Interesting metaphor. Okay, then he switches to talking about human beings. When you die, he says, you're sown as a physical body. You are raised as a spiritual body. What on earth is a spiritual body? Come on, Paul, tell me. He doesn't say. He uses the phrase again and again, spiritual body. It's almost like a contradiction in terms. I think what he's saying is, we don't become part of God. We continue as a creature, right? And God creates, God can recreate, God can change the creation, God can bring about new laws of physics in a new creation, but we remain creatures, and yet, what? Spiritually glorified creatures living in a new realm of existence. Now, whether most Christians would listen to what I've just said and say, oh, yeah, that's my faith, that's what I believe, I'm not sure. Again, the community in which I grew up, somewhat pietistic, somewhat typical American white evangelicalism, they would tend to use the language, when somebody dies, they go to heaven. I would tend to use the language, when someone dies, they enter into a rest, and what lies ahead, I haven't a clue except to dare to believe that the God who created us in the first place and who invites us into relationship will continue that relationship in a transformed creation in which our very humanity will be transformed. That's about the best I can do in terms of a view of participatory immortality as lying ahead. And I saw this in some of your questions, and you've kind of alluded to it. Is this just for the good Christians, or is it just for Christians? And Christians debate this. Yes, right? Do you have to do anything to sign on to this? There's a real movement in Christianity today to say, this is all, if this is true, and that's a big, big if, there's a certain humility here that has to be in place. If this is true, it is true because 
the love from which the universe, out of which the universe is created, is a gracious love. And it's grace, it's that graciousness, that loving generosity of the source that is the foundation of our confidence that we're in. It's not, oh, I've done such a good job. I followed Jesus down to the last little squiggle. No, it's not the merit of the individual. And here's where we get into some real trouble. Does somebody have to be a Christian for me to want to say, what I hope for, I hope for for all humanity? You see my danger there. I'm kind of, God forbid, I'm baptizing people without their consent. I mean, to put it just really bluntly. And I do not want to do that. On the other hand, the God that inspires me and holds my attention is such an overwhelmingly generous God that I can't imagine God saying at the end of time, whenever, however that might happen. Okay, so if you're Christians, you're in. If you're not, you rejected me, so I'm going to reject you. That is just not compatible with my idea of God. So it forces me into this untenable position of wanting to say, by virtue of the graciousness of God, the offer of participatory, joyous, transfigured life is an offer that extends to all human beings. And again, I'm painfully aware that some of my uh, Jewish friends in particular, I've had conversations, they just find that to be really weird. <laughs> and that's when they're being nice, right? This can come off as imperialistic. That's the last thing that Christians need to be is imperialistic. Is it imperialistic to emphasize the unlimited generosity of the source of the universe? If it is, I don't know what else to do except to, to emphasize that unlimited generosity. See, this makes me, because you answered a lot of questions, and yet you opened up a new can of worms for me, which is that if God extends this offer to everybody, do we have a choice in accepting it then? Like, do we have free will? Because I know some people will never hear about Christianity, no matter how much we talk about it. Yeah, I, I, frankly, to, to be perfectly honest, I'm not quite sure what to say in response to that. Does the love of God diminish human freedom or amount to a kind of disrespect for the inherent consent and dignity of every individual? I can't imagine that that is yes, but I can't imagine a God who at some point says, well, either because you didn't like what you heard about me, right? Either because you heard about how badly these Christians behaved, you didn't want anything to do with me. I can't imagine God at that point saying, so sorry, you cease to exist. I just, you see how I'm caught there. Right. And, and the bigger... The bigger category for me is the unlimited generosity of the source of all creation. I mean, if I, if I give that up, I cease to be a person of faith. I cease to be a person of Christian faith. I mean, I think that's the core of what Jesus said. God loves you. As God loved me, so I love you. God loves you. And yeah, without overcoming the freedom of the human, I mean, one way to think about this is to say, look, Christians have behaved so badly that if that's the offer, I can't stand it. And I can't accept that. Christians have done this, that, and the other. Guilty, as charged, absolutely. But I can't imagine a loving God saying, so you don't like Christians, I don't like you. Right? I could, instead, I would imagine God saying, brilliant, I don't like these Christians either. <laughs> I'm being generous with some of them, 
And if I'm generous with them, I'm certainly going to be generous with people who don't like them, right? And again, I'm, I'm taking the broad sweep of human history. Christians have done, I mean, we've done a lot of nice things. We've built hospitals. We've done this, that, and the other. I don't mean to say it's all gloom and doom, but any, any sense of the Inquisition or going back even earlier, the Crusades, my gosh, right? So anybody who takes those moments seriously as defining Christianity is perfectly justified, not only in my eyes, but I think in the eyes of the divine, in saying, if that's Christianity, no thanks, let me out. I'm going, this. I'm going somewhere else. Sorry, just before we jump into the longevity questions, because I know a lot of people listening will look forward to that. But once again, you opened a can of worms for me, which is earlier we talked about some sort of resurrection in the future, everybody. Mm. I think you said something we're made in when a spiritual body form that whole thing. Yeah, right. So by going to heaven, we're no longer human. Am I losing my humanity in a sense? Or is the creature going to heaven no longer me? I didn't mean to go philosophical, but it seems it's sort of a tough one to wrestle with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant question. I think the right answer to that is we are not yet fully created. And the future that we will enter into, if I'm right about this utter transformation, transfiguration, glorification, exaltation of our humanity, right? If I'm right that that's what lies ahead, that is not a negation of your personhood or your humanity, but rather it's the culmination of the pathway that we are on all along. So think of your humanity as existing in multiple states all kinds of examples from nature come to mind, of course. And Paul's idea of a seed that germinates. A lot of people pointed to butterflies, cocooned a butterfly. When does it cease to be the insect? It doesn't. Is it always on a path? Not because of some Aristotelian teleological factor, but because of, again, this is the purpose for which we are created. This is the purpose of the love that creates us to transfigure, to glorify, to make us fit to share unimaginable glory with everybody else in a transfigured creation for a very, very long time, if not eternity. I don't know about you, but I think I need to be changed to be able to take that, right? But will I be changed into something that is no longer me? I don't think so. I think rather it's the culmination of the identity, and I'm thinking here more of the personality, personal identity, but the identity that I am now. Does that make sense at all? I think I'm picking up a lot of what you're putting down here. And actually, on the topic of what you just said with ascending and all that, specifically one question I'm curious about is, I'm not of Christian faith, so I don't know much about this, but what is this, say in theory, heaven is a thing, heaven is what happens after we die. What is this supposed to be like? And on top of that, is it in some form like timeless? Are we aging there almost? Is our body going there? Do we just stay there for eternity, not realizing time is passing? Like, what's the case scenario there? Yeah, that's really good. Because for a lot of Christians, again, including the ones I grew up with, heaven is imagined in highly materialistic terms as a take everything you like about this creation and exaggerate it. So you have things like streets of gold. Well, what a bizarre idea. <laughs> Walking around on soft metal. That doesn't sound very appealing. 
the Bible uses metaphors like that. I think it's just simply saying, yeah, it remains physical. It is creation. It's not absorbed into the memory of God. It remains other than God and yet transformed so radically. It is not a place that I can go to, but rather a future for the whole creation that is yet to come. One of my favorite theologians of the ancient church, a guy by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, Greek-speaking theologian, lived in the eastern part of what is modern Turkey. One of my favorites there wrestled with this question, will we get tired? Will we age? And what he came up with was that just as the glory of the creator is infinite, so we will enter into a process of infinite growth. Now, I have trouble imagining that, but I like what he's after there. Constantly coming to a richer, fuller, more joyous, more imaginative, unlimited comprehension in solidarity with other creatures, likewise transformed, but words just simply run out at that point. Words fail. Words are not much good describing, well, describing God, first of all, incomprehensible mystery, and the Abrahamic traditions tend to agree on phrases like that. God is an incomprehensible mystery, but to participate in the community of God, to use the Christian term, to participate in the community of God in eternity is to enter into that incomprehensible mystery at ever deeper and deeper and deeper levels. Mm. Still sounds like a formula for boredom for some of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's an extended life for, if not for deeper and richer experience? Fair, fair. I think that's the insight that he's offering there. Just to jump in on while we're still hot on the topic. So we've talked a lot about heaven and this idea of hell. As someone who's not Christian, I've always heard the phrase, hell is eternal damnation, yeah. specifically focusing on the word eternal. So with this idea of eternal existence, are heaven and hell the only places with eternal existence? And on top of that, can you switch? Like say I'm in hell, I sinned a bunch. Is it possible to, in theory, be good in hell and upgrade or move up to heaven? Or how exactly does this ideology work? Yeah, those, those ideas certainly were explored in medieval Christianity, and you have imaginary ways in which you could go through a time of testing. And the Catholic notion of purgatory is built around that. But Protestants tended to get rid of that, and we became, I think, unfortunately, somewhat more brittle. You go one place and stay there, or you go the other place and stay there. And all of that is being called into question, though, by a lot of newer theologians well, I say newer. This goes back a hundred, almost a hundred years at this point. Some of the leading Protestant theologians of the last century have moved in this direction. This is the grace of God we're talking about here. How is hell compatible with the grace of God? Is God in eternity going to keep people roasting and burning and suffering because of some technicality, something they missed, something they did bad? So, does that mean everybody's in the better place? Karl Barth was asked this. He was one of the great uh, Protestant theologians of the mid-20th century. Hitler? Really? He's going to be there? Oh, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my answer is, well, if God can get me there, can God get Hitler there? But still, along with all of the people whose lives were utterly destroyed by these monsters of history, 
Will they be there and know each other? Again, it lands us in questions that are not easily answered. But the strongest argument, though, that comes into play is, again, this is the grace of the creator. This is the goodness, the love, the generosity of the creator. Are we going to put limits on that or limits on the power of what the creator can do to repair the broken human life, the sinful human life? It's tempting. And for good reason, we want to say, well, there's some people who just are not going to have no place in that. On the other hand, right? So there's a definite movement in the direction of saying hell is uh, maybe it's a good thing to tell people, watch out, this could happen. But it's at the same time to assure people, it's not real. It's not real in the sense in which traditional theology has imagined it to be real as a place of eternal, again, (laughs) lots of longevity there, eternal suffering, right? Who would want longevity if you'd spent in misery? Yeah, fair enough. Same logic applies to right now. You wouldn't want to live when you're not healthy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So going back to like life on earth, things that we're more familiar with. One question Suf and I came up with when we were discussing was, right now, there's all these potential therapies. Well, there's therapeutic interventions and there's those that enhance us. I think Sufo, you mm-hmm. mentioned like pacemakers, diabetic pumps, there's prosthetics. So are we on the right path in God's eyes by pursuing these technologies? Is it ethical in that sense? Yeah. In general, I would say yes. Of course, we can all think of examples of where it goes badly or ways in which something good can be used badly. So if I use my privilege, power, access, financial advantage to grab things and exclude others, (laughs) sounds like what we're doing with vaccines, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If I do that, is that a good thing? The vaccine's a good thing, right? The possibility is a good thing, but Human systems tend to corrupt and inject injustice and exclusion. And it's all the more worrisome if the technology gives me additional new power over other people. So if I take the power I have today, the privilege of my location, and buy something in the way of a human enhancement that gives me more power over other people, no religious person, no philosopher, no reflective person is going to endorse that except the person who shamelessly wants the power. But the benefit itself, the benefit to uh, not just to health, but to increased human capacity. I mean, can we boost intelligence by new means, not just school, not just the technologies that bring information to us quickly, not just all of those means, but by some sort of cognitive enhancer? A lot of university students are experimenting with that. Adderall, et cetera, widely used. Yeah. Yep. How much does it work? Good question. In the US, the FDA doesn't evaluate for enhancement. They evaluate for safety and efficacy for therapy, but they don't evaluate for enhancement. So all we got are human guinea pigs who experiment with these things, but the numbers are pretty big when it comes to cognitive enhancement. There are other areas I mean, one of the most intriguing is moral enhancement. Can we boost our moral, well, our capacity for empathy? And the answer is, seems to be yes, but watch out because if I boost my empathy, it might mean I'm more attuned to the needs of the people who are close to me and who look like me at the expense of others who might threaten or be seen as threatening. 
So to be overly empathetic is maybe not quite to be improved morally, although how can one be moral unless one is empathetic? So moral enhancement, that's a huge, huge debate. And whether that's actually attainable in any realistic sense remains to be seen. Life extension, there are all kinds of things that are being tried. Here, it's not just the FDA. How do you know whether something taken in your 30s, 40s, or 50s is going to be able to extend your lifespan through the 90s, through 100, 110, 120, 130? You have to wait a while, right? <laughs> to finish that experiment. Nobody has time to wait for that experiment. So you look for surrogate markers, but how good are those surrogate markers? How good are metabolism panels and cholesterol levels and that kind of thing in predicting longevity? Helpful, but not definitive. So yeah, we're good at making worms live longer. We're good at making mice live longer, but they have the courtesy of dying in short spells. So I mean, short uh, spans. And so you can run the experiment and publish the result. There are experiments going on with human beings, but I'm sure you know these are uh, far from being conclusive in any rigorous sense, but that doesn't stop a lot of people from being very interested, again, in whether it's as simple as green tea or it's metformin or resveratrol or any number of compounds and drugs that might do the trick. Back to the theological question, I guess I'm just really reluctant to think case by case, instance by instance, is God for this? Is God against this? How do I know? I mean, go to sacred texts and see what does the Bible say about this? Nah, come on. Is it consistent with the God that I think I know to say that this God wishes for humanity to flourish, to stop being egotistic, self-centered SOBs, to care for one another generously, compassionately. Can we boost what is good in us without somehow contaminating or making ourselves? The fear I have with transhumanism is that they want to take the self, which I think is, tends to be kind of selfish. They want to take the self and expand it. And I think what Christianity invites us to do is first take the self and empty it. Renounce privilege, power, ego, control. Renounce those things. And as you, well, there's, there's a text in the Christian scripture. We humble ourselves and we are lifted up, right? To empty or to humble ourselves, to renounce all the egocentric games that we play with each other is paradoxically to be on a pathway to enhancement spiritually. Can technology boost that? I want to say yes, but only, I think, if we're really, really cautious about how to avoid the problems and we get the starting point right. Again, if I say, look, selfish SOB that I am, I want to live an extra decade or two decades or three decades. Give me this pill. Give me the fountain of youth. Give me this stuff. Out of my selfishness or egotism, I have trouble with that. If, on the other hand, I say, I want to remain healthy, these are phrases from Christian scriptures. Actually, this is a hymn sung popularly in, in a lot of Christian circles. I want to live so God can use me, right? I want to live so God can use me. If that's the motivation, not I want to live because I'm afraid to die, or I want to live because I deserve to live because I'm such a wonderful, self-absorbed Silicon Valley entrepreneur. 
No, I want to live so God can use me. And that means taking precautions, getting my vaccine, getting my green tea, maybe going a step further, resveratrol or whatever it is. I'm okay with that, I think. I don't see the problem there. I mean, it hangs on intentionality and that just freaks other people out, right? How can a technology be good depending on your intent? Well, for Christians, intentionality is really important. What's your intent? To bolster the self or to humble the self? To serve the self or to serve others? If it's in humility and grace to serve others, then if technology helps, go for it. I hope that makes some sense. I sometimes have trouble explaining why Christians are so convinced that intentionality is important. It's hard to assess, like in a court of law, it's hard to assess even in bioethics. How can the same thing be good or bad depending on the intent of the person? And yet, I don't know how else to interpret the core of uh, the moral message of Christianity, except to say the intentions of the heart make a huge difference. It's not the action so much as the intent that lies behind the action. So it's more like a case-by-case -case scenario rather than as a whole scenario. Yeah, almost more by a person-by-person -person scenario, recognizing that we all start out with this propensity. Well, this is the gloomy side of Christianity speaking. We all start out with this propensity for selfishness. Can we grow up, lay that down, enter into a space in which we say, the most important thing is not me, 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 but how can I help? How can I love? How can I serve? How can I lift others up rather than climb over them? It's so counter the thinking of so many people. I mean, I took a swipe at the Silicon Valley culture, but it's a culture that permeates so much of the world today. And I think Christians are called to something radically different so in some respects, yeah, case by case, but almost heart by heart, if that makes sense. Mm. What's in your heart? Okay, so I feel like a few minutes ago, we speaked about life extension technologies and things that may enhance humans. So just speaking more generally and on average, where's the line? Like where would Protestants like draw the line on life extension technologies they might accept versus they wouldn't accept? Throwing out some names or some examples like mind upload versus simply taking a pill that might increase your life for five years. Where's the line? Yeah. In some respects, you almost have to wait to see what's available, how safe is it, and what does it really mean culturally, sociologically to participate. Just a quick aside on this mind uploading. There's an interesting debate there. Personally, I don't think that's going to work. Okay. For philosophical reasons. I could be wrong, but it sounds to me to be too dualistic, as if to say there's a, there's a bunch of information about me that can be migrated from one physical substrate to another. Oh, but isn't that what Christianity suggests? Yeah, it gets, the proximity is so great there that it's really hard to sort this through. And it's funny. You get a few Christians together in a room with a few people advocating mind uploading, and they come out of there completely not comprehending each other, except to say, you guys are a bunch of dualists, and both will say that to the other. The reason why I think the uploading is dualistic is you have the transition from this dying brain 
to the next physical substrate. Something is harvested, the data are harvested and moved. How is that possible philosophically? And again, I don't know the answer to that, but a theistic approach would be to say, well, it's not quite like that. It's the transformation of the physical creation. I could be wrong on my prediction that this will never be possible. If I am, we'll come back and revisit that. But I (laughs) I don't see it as being possible. I will grant very quickly that there's a deep affinity between a theistic view of a resurrection, a transition from physical body to spiritual body. There's a deep affinity between that and what the mind-uploading advocates, whole brain simulation advocates are suggesting. Now, I tend to be much more at home with biological notions and the idea that I could possibly take something or live a certain way so as to extend my longevity. Well, in some respects, I'm already doing that. Would I take something more sophisticated? I've thought of it. I possibly will. Uh, Would I take something new that is yet to be developed that would pretty much guarantee like an extra 10 years of health span? I would look at that very seriously. I don't think it would be incompatible with who I am or who I believe I shall be. I don't think it would be. Although, as you can imagine, well, two, two things. One is, I don't want an extension that ends in misery. We already talked about that. But I don't want an extension that springs out of uh, either fear of death or a sense that I'm too important to die, right? That egotistic view, I hope to God that if, if I find myself acting egotistically, I will have the courage to say, enough of that already. It's time to go. Just to wrap up. Uh, even though you're retiring, if people want to find out more about your work or support it or possibly get involved in the whole field, what's the best way to do so? Well, people can certainly email me. I'm going to keep my current work address, at least for the foreseeable future, C-O-L-E-T-U-R-N at P-T-S. That's Pittsburgh Theological Seminary at pts.edu. Beyond that, I got in early enough to Google Gmail uh, Ron Cole Turner, run all that together. Ron Cole Turner at Gmail. Seriously, anybody listening, um, they've got questions, feel free to be in touch. I'm going to be moving around a bit to uh, different locations around the country over the next uh, year or so, but I would certainly welcome conversation from either of you or from any of the listeners. Of course. Thank you so much. So for all of you guys listening, Ron's email and any other links that are relevant that we discussed will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, Ron, for coming on. I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking your time to come speak with us on this beautiful summer day. And yeah, that's all. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me.